Well, let's uh, open up in prayer and we'll get our, our morning started. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this opportunity to come together as men. And we just pray, Father, that you would be glorified and honored by all that we say and do. Father, we thank you that uh, this uh, series that we're about to wrap up has helped us look a little bit more closely at the seasons of our life that we all go through. And Father, as we wrap it up this morning and as we look at this season of success, I pray that you would give us a different uh, and a new perspective on what it means to be successful in your eyes. Father, I thank you for these men. I pray that you would uh, encourage us by what we hear. I pray for the time of discussion around the tables that you would bless it. I pray, Father, for those men in the room who are uh, going through some difficult times, some struggles, either with work, finances, relationships, whatever it may be, Father. Uh, Just minister to them this morning. And we just continue to just lean on you, Father, for all our needs. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are going to wrap it up this morning. We've been doing the seasons of a man's life, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about success, uh, something we all have an interest in. We want to be successful. We want to succeed at life. We want to succeed at work. We want to succeed as fathers. We want to su- succeed as husbands. And so we're going to talk about success this morning, but I think it'll probably be a little bit different than maybe what we typically hear. Uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of preachers out there today. There's a lot of churches out there today who preach success. Um, and it's really all about having more money, living in a nicer home, driving a nicer car. And their definition, definition of success is a lot different than what we're going to talk about this morning. But success is something we're all interested in. If I went around the room and had asked every guy to bring their resume... I'm pretty sure every guy in this room would have one. Maybe it's a little antiquated. You haven't had to get it out for a while. You'd have to dust it off, bring it up to speed. Uh, I got mine out, and mine's one of those. It's a little antiquated. Um, It's not up to speed. It doesn't have everything on it. But it's basically two pages. And it's two pages that talks about everything, well, not everything I've ever done. You know, resumes are interesting, aren't they? Uh, What you leave out. your failures, uh, your disappointments. You don't put that on a resume. But my resume has every place I've ever worked, uh, every title I've ever had, um, every account I've ever worked on. It's kind of a history of who I am, a history of what I've done. And most of you have, have a resume. And it's a representation of you. When you go out into the business world, when you apply for a job, the first thing they ask for is, well, give me a resume. And it's your introduction into their world, their introduction to you, who you are, what you've accomplished, your accomplishments, your achievements, successes, um, any awards you've won, any degrees that you've earned, uh, they go on your resume. Any jobs you've been fired from, you typically don't put on there because you don't want them to be a reference. Uh, But you put everything you've ever accomplished on a resume. And mine testifies to what I believe is my value. What's my worth? Why would these people want to hire me? Here's what I bring to the table. And so you, you, you're very careful when you work on a resume to make sure that you put everything you've ever done, everything you've ever accomplished, what your successes have been, what you feel like your strengths are. You know, for instance, on mine, and you're, there's different ways of doing it, but you've got things like your experience, your education, you know, awards, achievements. And depending on your industry, that'll change what you put on your resume. 
You know, mine talks about my abilities, and it kind of boasts about it, uh, what I've done. Um, you know, you do the same thing. It's not just me. It's a chronicle of my careers. It's in, you know, chronological order, starting with the, the most recent all the way to the, the first job I ever had. Uh, so it's, again, it chronicles who I am. It's a history of who I am and my professional accomplishments. So every guy in this room has one. And so this morning, I want to look at somebody else in Scripture who has a pretty impressive resume. And it's Saul. Not King Saul, but Saul who later became the Apostle Paul. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. We want to take a look at Saul. This guy, you know, before becoming the Apostle Paul, Saul was a, a, an incredible man. He had a, an impressive resume that anybody in his day and age would have died to have. Uh, You'd have been jealous to have his resume. And we're going to take a look at it this morning. His resume was impressive, and in his day, you literally would have killed to have a resume like his. You would have done anything to have accomplished what he accomplished. So let's take a look at it. What's his background? Well, we we know that Paul was a cosmopolitan guy. He was a city guy. Uh, He was well-traveled. He was well-spoken, well-educated. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a large, influential city of his day. So he wasn't from some backwater podunk town. He was from Tarsus. And if he said that, it meant something to people. He was of pure Jewish descent. And he makes a big deal out of that. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And again, to other Jews, that was impressive. So big city guy from Tarsus, Jewish descent. He was a Roman citizen. So he kind of held dual citizenships. He was Jewish in his heritage. But he was also a Roman citizen because his father was Roman. What about his education? He was trained by the great rabbi philosopher Gamaliel. uh, And that was a huge badge of honor. Uh, It'd be like saying, you know, I went to MIT. It it, it had this ring of just, wow, you, you were trained by the best, one of the best leaders of his day. He could speak Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. I struggle with English. You know, but this guy could speak three different languages, highly educated, incredibly intelligent. If you go read the book of Romans, you see just how intelligent the guy was. Uh, you know, Romans is one of those books you have to read and kind of reread it and read it again just to try to figure out what he's saying. He was highly intelligent. How about societies and organizations he was a member of? Well, he was a member of the Pharisees. He was a member of the Pharisee sect and was highly respected and and on his way up the the ladder, on his way to the top. He was a member of the Radical Zealot Party, which they were basically extreme nationalists. They they fought for and were very zealous for Israel. So he's a Pharisee. He was also a a zealot. How about his job? What did this guy do for a job? This is where it gets interesting. Well, he worked directly for the high priest one of the most important religious leaders in the land. Well, what did he do? What did he do for him? Well, first of all, he he was respected because of what he did and because of who he worked for. And when he walked into town and said, I work for the high priest, that got people's attention. So he was highly respected, lots of high esteem, and he was feared. Because here's what he did. He was responsible for protecting the Jewish faith. That was his job. That's what he did for a living. He, had t- he protected it from attack and from false teachers. 
So his job was to basically go out and stifle anything that would have harmed the Jewish faith. And primarily, what did he fight against? Christians. Because in his mind, they were one of the most influential and negative sources against the Jewish faith. He traveled extensively. That's what the guy did. I mean, he he had huge advantage miles because he was constantly on the road, traveling from city to city. And what he did when when he got there is he persecuted the church. That was his job. That's what he was hired to do. Well, he had it all. If you go back and look at the life of Saul, he had everything going for him. He was a huge success on any level you looked at it, a huge success. And he had at least five of the six Ps. And there are more, probably more Ps, but these are six of the Ps that I think are important to all of us as men. One of them is power. The other is position. He had prestige. He had influence. He could walk in and say anything. He carried papers from the high priest. He could get anything he wanted. He could confiscate anything he wanted. He could arrest anybody he wanted. He could put him in jail. He could have him put to death because of the power and the prestige that he held. He had prominence. People respected him. When he, when he came into a room, people noticed him and respected him. He had lots of possessions. We don't know how wealthy Paul was, but he was more than likely pretty well off, uh, well paid for what he did, and he had popularity. Now, he wasn't very popular with Christians, but he was popular with other Jews. So this guy had everything going for him. He had a great resume, and if he wanted to get a job, he could probably get a job doing just about anything. But at this point, he's working for the high priest. You know, there's... Is there anything wrong with these P's, the five P's? Maybe you got six P's, seven P's. Is there anything wrong with them? You know, reality is there's nothing wrong with any of these things, power, position, prestige, prominence, possessions, popularity. There's nothing wrong with those. The Bible doesn't teach against those. It's just when they become our goal and our primary objective, something's out of whack. And I think for Saul... These things were really what he was going after. He wanted power. He wanted position. He wanted prominence. He wanted to be respected. He wanted all of these things. And they became his obsession. They became what drove and motivated his life. There's nothing wrong with them. Because we can have position and it really be a benefit to us as believers because we can impact change. We can influence others. Um, So... I don't want you to get the idea that any of these things are wrong, but it's not how we as believers should should view success. Are we successful or unsuccessful based on these things? If I don't have power, am I unsuccessful? If I don't have position, am I unsuccessful? If I have them, am I successful? What we're looking at is what does God view as success? So as we go further into this life of Saul, what we're going to find out is that he really does enter into God's school of success training. How does God train up successful men? And really, if you look at Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 11, we get a picture of what happens in his life, what's going to happen to transform his life from what he thought was success to what God views as success. Number one, Saul was in control of his life. At least he thought so. Now, how many of us as men really think we're in control? 
you know, man, I, I got the plan. I'm working my plan. I, I got the education. I got the money. I know exactly what's going on. Only to find out that maybe you aren't in control or at least not as in control as you thought. You know, when it came to religion, his religion, this guy, according to him in Philippians 3, 6, he said, I was blameless. I don't know that I could say that. When it comes to my religion, I'm blameless. But Paul said it. He felt like he was blameless. He also said when it came to patriotism, fighting for his country, the Jewish people, he was a zealot. I mean, he was hardcore. He put it all on the line. His job was to fight for his country. But from a religious standpoint, when it came to his job, he was the best. And he brags about it. Elsewhere in the book of Acts, in Philippians, he bragged about how good he was at what he did. He was on the fast track to the top. And when it came to competition, he was merciless. I mean, you did not want to get in, in Saul's way. You did not want to be on the rung above him because he would just he would take you out. If you got in his way, he would take you out. That's why the church, what's referred to in the book of Acts as the way, these sect of religious fanatics, they were in his way. They were an affront to his sensibility. They were a threat to the Jewish faith, and he was merciless. He, he arrested men, women, children. Not only arrested them, but put them to death, put them in jail, put them in chains. So he was, he was merciless about everything that he did. And he thought, I'm in control. But he was about to discover something, that his plan didn't agree with God's plan for his life. And some of us in the room have discovered that, haven't we? That, man, I had this plan, I thought I was working my plan, I thought I had it all nailed down, only to find out that God had a different plan. And he revealed it to me in his own inimitable way. Well, he was about to discover the same thing. Because what did he do? His job was to go out and to eradicate this radical movement called the way, Christians, Christ followers. His job was to get rid of them, persecute them, arrest them, throw them in jail, Kill him if necessary, but get rid of it completely. That was his job. He thought his job was to keep the Jewish faith pristine and pure. That's my job. I've got to keep anything from infiltrating and harming it and hurting it. You know what's fun about studying the life of Saul is that you take that same attitude, the same zealousness, and when he became a believer, did any of that go away? He was the same guy. He just had a whole new agenda. What did he protect vehemently once he became a Christian? Jesus Christ and the church. His letters were all about protecting the integrity of the church. He was doing the same thing, but with a different objective and a different goal. That's one of the things I like about when Christ calls a man, when Christ comes into your heart and life, he doesn't emasculate you. He doesn't take away your personality. He doesn't turn you into some kind of a robot. He takes what you are and he transforms it for his use. If you're a type A personality before Christ, you're going to be a type A personality after Christ. You're just going to have a different goal and objective in mind. He doesn't change you in that degree. He takes who you are and he transforms you. That's exactly what he's going to do for him. This guy had a mission 
He just happened to be on the wrong one. And sometimes, guys, we have to wake up and realize that we're on a mission, but it may not be God's mission. It may not be what he wants for us. And so we're off on a fast track doing what we think we want to do, and he's got a different plan for you and a different mission for you. And at some point, he's going to reveal it to you. He's going to show you that this isn't what I wanted you to do. This isn't where I want you to be. This isn't where I want you to go. doesn't mean all those steps along the way were wrong. It's just that now it's time for a change. I'm convinced that everything Saul did, every list on his um, resume was in God's plan. But the timing now was about to change. I look back in my life and every agency I've worked for, every job I've ever had, even the ones I hated and quit, were in God's plan because they prepared me for what he wanted me to do. The same thing is true of this guy. He was on a mission. It just happened to be the wrong one, and God was about to change that. See, Saul's future was brighter than he ever anticipated. I think he really, man, I've got a bright future. I'm on the way to the top. I'm convinced that he thought he was going to be the next high priest. I mean, for Saul, that would have been the greatest achievement if I could become high priest. But God was about to show him that, you know, your plans are so dim compared to mine. Your future is so dim compared to what I have in store for you. And it was going to be much brighter than he ever could have dreamed because God was about to show him the real meaning of success. Here's what success is on my terms. Can you imagine if Saul had just kept going down the road he was going and, and that trip to Damascus had never happened, if he had never been transformed by the power of the living God, man, we would have lost so much. He would have lost so much. The church would have lost so much. But God was about to show him something, and he was about to hear a voice other than his own. See, one of the things I think, guys, we really struggle with is we love the sound of our own voice. We love to hear what we think. We love to tell other people what we think. We love to express our opinions. We love to tell people what we think they should do with their life. And yet what he was about to find out is somebody else has something they want you to hear. And where did he hear it? On the road to Damascus. A new voice with new information and a new plan. And he was about to see something bigger and brighter than his own ego. I would love to have seen what that was like on the road to Damascus when he's you know, taking that little trip and he's on his way to persecute the church and he's got a plan and he's probably thinking through all the stuff that, man, man, when I get there and I'm going to arrest more people and that's going to go on my list and that's going to go on my resume and, man, I'm on my way to the top and suddenly he has an encounter with Christ on that road, bright shining light, so bright that it blinds him. And he, was a, he got new direction from someone other than himself. You know, and I guess what, what I think about that, I think about the fact that every day of my life, Jesus Christ wants to speak into my life new direction, new meaning, new objectives through, the, through his word and through the Holy Spirit. But I'm so busy with my own plans and my own objectives. And he's trying to show me, you know, Ken, your ego is way too big. Your plans are far too grandiose, and, and they don't even have a, an inkling of the glory that I would like to have in your life if you would just listen to me, if you'd stop and listen to me. And so here's what's going to happen to this guy. 
he's going to undergo a career change. A major career change. Has anybody in here gone through a career change? I mean, like radical career change? Yeah. It's, it's unnerving, isn't it? To go through a career change. I, I've shared with you guys, to go from 29 years in advertising to now working for the church as a minister has been a major career change. It's radical for me. And every day is a new adventure. A new thing, I don't know what I'm doing. It's, it's new, it's challenging. And this guy is going to go through a major career change because he, he's going to go from doing one thing to doing something completely different. He's going to go from being a persecutor of the church to a minister of the church. That's a major career change. It's a 180. It's like you know, from going from being an atheist to a pastor of a major church. He, he's, this is radical. This is new stuff. He's going to go from destroying the church to building it up, helping it grow. Go back and read all of his letters, and what, of his, what do his letters do? They're encouraging the growth of the church, individual members and the corporate church. So he went from destroying it to building it up and protecting it with his life. And he's going to go from trying to kill Christians to building up Christians. He's going to go from working for the Jews to working for Christ. And what's going to happen is the Jews are going to want to kill him. And all through the book of Acts, you see that over and over again. You know, every time in the book of Acts, and I, this has always fascin fascinated me, but every time Paul went on a trip and he went into a community, and he was basically the apostle to the what? The Gentiles. That was his job. That's what Christ called him to do, is to go take the gospel to Gentiles. But where was the first place he went every time he went into a community? The synagogue. And what typically happened? He got rode out on a rail. They tried to stone him. They tried to beat him. They Every time. But he kept going back to his people because he loved his people. So he went from trying to kill Christians to protecting Christians. He went from working for the Jews to being trying to be killed by the Jews. Radical career change. And he would spend the next three years, after the road to Damascus experience, he'd spend three years of his life going through career change counseling. That, you know, that's a long time to just for God to sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to work on you and get you ready for what I have you to do. And I think sometimes in our life, that's exactly what God's trying to do. He's trying to take us through career change counseling. I know this is what you've done all your life, but you know what? This is what I'm going to do with you now. Would you listen to me? Would you hear me out? It's going to be so much better than anything you could ever imagine. Well, he's going to go through this realignment of what it means to be successful. Flip, flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. And I love this. I love this story. I love the story of the Apostle Paul just because, man, what a, what a radical change this guy went through. And, and the Apostle Paul is somebody we hold in high esteem as Christians because of what he did on behalf of the church. But look at what he's going to go through. If you take verses 4 through 6, you get the before. This is Saul, Saul before conversion. And here's some of the things it lists. It says, I was circumcised by the eighth day, which is, means he kept the law. 
Even as a kid, he kept the law. Not that he had a whole lot of control over it. But by the time he was eight days old, he got circumcised, which was the right thing to do. He was of the nation of Israel. This means he was one of God's chosen people. This is what they hung their hat on, to be a chosen child of God, a, a member of this Israelite race was, man, that's the best you can be. So he was an Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was, which was a huge deal. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Among Hebrews, I'm the best there is. You know, he's a little bit braggadocious. Not a little, a lot. Very prideful before Christ. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. He's one of the elite. He's, he's one of the top. Not only a Pharisee, but he's one of the best Pharisees on his way to the top. So this is the before. And he says, as to righteousness of the law, I'm blameless. I keep the law. I do what I'm supposed to do. And so this is the before. But what happens? Look at this. What's interesting about this passage in Philippians chapter 3 is all the terminology is accounting terminology. You hear, you know, gains, loss, profit. And so what I've done is just list. Here's his assets and here's his liabilities according to him prior to Christ, prior to the Damascus Road experience. All the assets, but he lists no liabilities. I've got no liabilities. I'm the best there is. I'm the tops. But it ain't going to stay that way. Something's going to change. Because if you keep going on in verses 7 through 8, you get the after. This is after Christ. So he starts talking about profit. He starts talking about loss. He says, everything I've accomplished, my, my resume, my accolades, all my achievements are nothing. And I count them as rubbish, as scubula, as dung. There is, that's the value I place on all those assets before. They're worth losing just in order to gain Christ. I'd give all that stuff up. It's like taking your resume, guys. And saying, you know what, this is, this is all my accomplishments. This is who I am. This is what gets me a job. This is what I've done in my life. And this is what it's worth. Nothing compared to gaining Christ. It means absolutely nothing. It's valueless. So he talks about profit and loss. He talks about loss versus surpassing value. All that stuff I lost, you know what? All of that is nothing when compared to knowing Christ. Everything I've done is nothing compared to just the opportunity to get to know Christ. Profit, loss, loss versus value, rubbish versus Christ. He was willing to consider his resume, his curriculum vitae. It's, it's nothing but garbage compared to gaining Christ. That's an amazing thing, an amazing transformation in the life of this man. So now when you look at his after sheet, assets versus liabilities, all his liabilities are now the things that used to be assets. But what does he list as his asset now? Just knowing Christ. That's all I care about is knowing Christ. His view of success has changed. His assets and liabilities have, have completely shifted well, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you get a picture of Paul, a changed man. 
you know, this the, the, the whole reason we've been going through the seasons of life, guys, and uh, the series we did on discipleship and the commands of Christ is this is all about change. This is about you and I radically being transformed by the power of God. And what we see in Paul's life is that he was a changed man. We looked at the before, we've looked at the after, but let's look at some of the things that changed. He's no longer the same. He had a different employer. He was no longer working for the high priest. He was working for Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.1, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He was called to do something, and he was called by God himself, and he was now an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had a new employer. He had a new person that he was working for, somebody to answer to. He had a different ambition. We've looked at his ambition before Christ, but now he has a new ambition. Second Corinthians says, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's his new ambition. What's your ambition? There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with doing well at your work. You should. Do it as unto the Lord. But as believers, our, our primary ambition should be to be pleasing to him. And that will change a whole lot of what we do. How we approach work. How many hours we put in. How we try to get up the ladder. Maybe it'll change to making somebody else successful rather than you. Helping someone else achieve rather than just yourself. He had a different ambition. He also had a different perspective. You see that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I think Paul could say this from personal experience. I think he lived his life before Christ obsessed with, with Saul. What's in it for me? What will this get me? You have to have a pretty self-centered perspective to persecute women and children and throw them into prison. It's all about him before. Now look at it. New perspective. It's not about my personal interests. It's about those around me. Well, he also had a new resume. And we're going to take a look real quickly at his resume, and I want you to think about these questions. Is this the kind of resume you'd like to carry around in your notebook? Is it one you would aspire to? And does this resume look like what the world expects from a resume? And where you're going to find this, guys, is you can spend more time there on your own, but we're going to look real quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm just going to blow through these real quickly to give you an idea of how his resume changed. Keep in mind what he used to do and what he listed, and now look at this. He says, we're in far more labors. The guy worked his tail off after coming to know Christ. Labors, sufferings. He was in prison, constantly being thrown in prison. He was beaten times without number, beaten to within an inch of his life, left for dead. He says, often in danger of death. He would go into places and be in danger. They'd be threatening him. His friends and fellow Christians would say, get out of town, just leave. It's not safe for you here. He received 39 lashes five different times. Can you imagine that? You know, to be lashed 39 times, five different occasions. 
He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead once. That's about all it would take for me. I would change careers, but not not Paul. He said he was shipwrecked three different times. He spent a tremendous amount of time on the road, traveling from one place to the other, by foot, not by car, not by train, walking. He goes on, he says, we had dangers from rivers. Not sure what that means, but somewhere along the way he had some... uh, some occurrences in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his own countrymen who hated his guts, dangers from the Gentiles who didn't like him either, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. You get the picture? Danger. Everywhere he turned, danger. Dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. You know, a lot of his letters were dealing with false teachers in the church, and they didn't like him because he was disrupting what they had going. Labor, hardship. Sleepless nights. He goes on. Hunger and thirst. Without food. In cold and exposure. This is his resume now. Wow, would you hire this guy? What a loser. I mean, you can't even stay out of trouble. You can't even feed yourself. What's wrong with you? Well, he goes on in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm the last of all. Man, is that a, that's a change. I'm the least of all. I'm last of all. He says, I'm a man condemned to death. But that's okay with me. I'm a spectacle to the world. I'm just kind of some bizarre freak show, and that's all right. He says, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. I'm weak. I'm without honor. I'm hungry and thirsty. He says, I'm poorly clothed. I'm roughly treated. Again, this is his resume. This is who he is now. He goes on, I'm homeless. I'm reviled, I'm persecuted, I'm slandered, I'm the scum of the world. When's the last time you referred to yourself as the scum of the world? Hey, hire me, I'm the scum of the world. Thank you, there's the door. He's the, he says, I'm the dregs of all things. You know, we look at that and we think, oh, what a poor self-esteem this guy had. No, he just knew he had a new perspective, he had a new life. So here's the question as we wrap up. How do you measure success? How do you measure success, guys? Is it the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the job you have, how much money you you make? Is it the home you live in? I love what Irma Bombeck said. She's a, a writer who's no longer with us. But listen to what she says. Don't confuse fame with success. Madonna is one. Helen Keller is the other. Helen Keller was a blind woman who worked with the blind. Success is one thing, but it ain't Madonna. It really is not Madonna. We look at the world, and she's got all kinds of money. She's got all kinds of fame. She's got all kinds of fortune. Everybody's at her beck and call, but she is not the measure of success. She's just got fame. What does God say? Here's his measure of success. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from the right to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. You want success? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You want to be successful? Start here. Start here. Spend time in this book. Get to know it. Apply it. Be changed by it. This is where it begins. And finally, I'll close with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
the figure of the crucified, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, invalidates all thought which takes success for its standard. Think about Jesus, spitting on, rejected, beaten, hung on a cross, humiliated, stripped to his naked. That's success. Not in the world's terms, but yes, he is, because he did the will of the Father, and he died, he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father today. What is success? How do you measure success? Guys, I am not telling you not to strive at your careers. I'm not telling you not to work hard. I am telling you as a believer, though, we have got to figure out what is it that God wants to do with your life. What does God want to do with you? And I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again. God has a plan for every man in this room, and God has a ministry for every man in this room. Do you know what it is? Do you know what he's trying to tell you? Do you know what he wants to do with you? Find out. Because maybe his plan is different than the one you currently are working. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you that you have a plan for every man in this room. Father, you are taking them on a journey, and you are trying to get every one of us to understand that it's not about me being in control, it's about you being in control. It's not about my will, it's about your will. It's not about what I want to achieve, it's what you want to achieve through me. And Father, like Saul becoming the Apostle Paul, sometimes you have to take us through some radical transformation. Father, I pray that we would be willing to allow you to transform us every single day, changing our perspective, helping us to understand that we have a different employer than we think we do. You have a different goal for us than what we may have for us. But your will and your way is perfect and righteous and holy. Father, may we be the Pauls of our day. May we be men who make a radical difference in the life of the church. May our lives make a difference in our community, in our homes, in our workplace, in this church. May we be men who really do make a difference. Father, I thank you for these guys. I pray your blessing on their lives. I pray that they would seek you with all their heart and that, Father, we would make your word our primary goal and objective, to know it, apply it, and to live it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, because he's your son and our savior. Amen. Guys, no homework, but next week in the chapel, 630, how shall we then live?